Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, do you think Maximus was giving a preemptive answer to that great question or that great imploration by Kurt Cobain? Here we are now, entertain us. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? (laughs) I'm here. I I entertained. (laughs) What's going on, guys? (laughs) Yes, I think Maximus must have known the tribulations that Gen X was going to have uh, conduited through Nirvana. Yeah, I mean, and was... what, I think what he really valued was <laughs> the level of entertainment that the crowd was demanding. That was kind of that was his whole thing. And they loved him for it. They did. And he had the mob in his hand, you know? He went from a slave to... Not so unlike Cobain. True. Cobain did have the mob in his hand. It didn't really help him, though. They, they both died. <laughs> yeah. In... Equal circumstances, I guess. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I, Cobain's death <laughs> not was quite. maybe not noble. I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> it was uh, much sadder yes. than Maximus's. Although I guess Maximus's was pretty sad, too. But at least, you know, it, it's one of those deaths where you're like, ah, what his death meant something, right? I mean, it's hard to say. I guess his death meant, Cobain's death meant something. Well, it definitely made a lot of news. Yeah. And... Resonated a very sad thing as opposed to a noble thing. Yeah, but you know, it immortalized their music forever. I wonder if they would have been as immortalized if he hadn't done that. I don't know, because now he's forever twenty seven. Because he's part of the twenty seven club. I thought it was the twenty nine club. No, it's the twenty seven club. It's oh, okay. the rock stars who died at age 27. I guess really what's the point of going on for us, Luke? We're, <laughs> we're yeah, we're way past our rock star death age. <laughs> but it was like Kurt Cobain and Jimi Hendrix was 27. And Janis Joplin was 27. And Jim Morrison was 27. And then I think there was a guy from like a, an original member of the Rolling Stones too, but I can't remember. And maybe not. Maybe that's... Not part of it either. So there's nothing quite like rock and roll to segue into ancient Rome. <laughs> Roman roll. <laughs> Roman roll. Actually, that that reminds me of a joke that uh, my friend Danica told me. Okay. What do you call a sleepwalking nun? I don't know what. A Roman Catholic. Uh, <laughs> I like that one. Yeah. That's a good one. It is surprisingly edifying for yeah. my type of humor. It's true. It comes out of left field because you're expecting something much, much cruder. No, and it just ends up being <laughs> punny. Yeah. Just straight up wordplay. Right, there we go. <laughs> yeah. So today we're doing Gladiator. Yes. The film from the year 2000. It actually won movie of the year that year. Yeah. Best picture. Best Ridley picture. Scott directed. One of the masters. And then Russell Crowe, I still believe a a great actor, despite many of his foibles in his personal life. Yeah, there's a great South Park of him. Fighting around the world. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's just him getting into fights all just, over the just, place. Yeah, I think, you know, stardom isn't as easy on some people as it is on other people. And he seems to have suffered more from it. I mean, Mel Gibson is another example of someone who didn't really <laughs> handle their celebrity all that well. And Mel Gibson is famous for a other movie around that time era as well. And similar so, vein, yeah. one would say. Yeah. Uh, well, the Roman Empire was a huge player in Passion of the Christ as well. Yes. Yes, although I think Passion of the Christ was quite a lot later than Gladiator. No, no, no. Well, do you mean when it was made? Yes. Yeah, well, Gladiator was 2000, Passion of the Christ was 2004, I think. Yeah, well, I guess and, not that much later. And, but, but, like, the setting was... Oh, because so, oh, no, Gladiator set in 180 AD, so 180 years after, after yeah. the setting of Passion of the Christ. Marcus Aurelius. Yeah, Russell Crowe, uh, Joaquin Phoenix. And, also a very good role by him. I oh, think he, incredible. he masterfully acted that one. And we're recording this about three weeks after we have gone to see The Joker, we won't put any spoilers from that in this, but I just, it's so cool to see a movie, you know, 2019. Gladiator was t- 19 years ago. And Joaquin Phoenix is just, you can just see how he's aged, you know, and how he's, but he still plays like this fucked up, crazy. He seems to like these weird <laughs> yeah, roles. Yeah, he's, he's good at the weird he guy is, roles. Because we also good. recently watched, I know you didn't really like this movie, but he was a weird guy in The Master. Yeah, I which couldn't, was one couldn't of get into that movie. I, I one of I'm um, aware a lot of people like it. But. Philip Seymour Hoffman's last movies, and he's very weird in that one as well. Yeah, but yeah, couldn't couldn't get into. I mean, that there's one. probably some normal Joaquin Phoenix roles. We just can't think of any. <laughs> I mean, he's kind of normal in Signs, and that's back to Mel Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> Look at us going yeah. full circle. Yeah, we could play this game. <laughs> Six degrees of weird. <laughs> six degrees of weird. Joaquin Phoenix, <laughs> and uh, then Connie Nielsen is in it too. She plays Lucilla. What else has she been in? She's in a bunch of things that I can't remember off the top of my head because I recognize her name. So then there's a bunch of good kind of character actors too, and uh, Marcus Aurelius, the emperor at the start of the movie, is played by Richard Harris who is the actor who played Dumbledore in the first two Dumb- in the first two Harry Potter movies and then he passed away unfortunately so they had to replace him with Michael Gambon <laughs> to play Dumbledore and so now hopefully you're getting a sense of our movie film actor bona fides <laughs> just in case you guys are worried about that we just, we <laughs> Uh, I, I'm a good trivia partner when it comes to actors and actresses. Let's just say that Luke's mind works very well with remembering things. Uh, only if they're not very useful to <laughs> anything other than a trivia night, maybe. But he'll he rocks a trivia night, guys. So, you know, if you ever want him on your team, just let us know. <laughs> yeah. And then who else is in this movie? I think, oh, oh, you know what? I can't ever say his name properly, but it's something. I think it's like Digimon Hanzu or Hanzu. He's the slave friend. Yes. Uh, He's in last movie. He was in Blood Diamond. Great actor. Yeah, he's so good. And then, actually, this was a really fun... I mean, we might as well go through this all the way. The kid, and I can't remember his name, but the the kid who played Lucius, who is Lucilla's son, and I guess Commodus' nephew, they kind of 
<laughs> little yeah, bit of the we movie. Don't know, wink, really. wink, nod, nod. Is it his nephew or his son? Or, Mar- or Maximus. <laughs> or Maximus's son. Yeah, like it's never made clear and it's left dangling a little bit. And it's probably clear and we just don't know. <laughs> and pe- people loved this movie so much that there were a lot of fan theories out sure. on the internet about it. So and that was one of the fan So theories. anyway, the actor that played that kid is the same actor who played the son of Bruce Willis in Unbreakable. And then recently I saw Glass, and he's an adult. as <laughs> that son still in that one, so that's kind of fun. Oh, that is good. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> so yeah, there's a few, there's quite a few faces in this movie that you would recognize, I think. And then um, this is an actor I'm not very familiar with, but Oliver Reed, I think his name is, plays Proximo. And I read somewhere that he actually died during the filming of Gladiator. So they had to, the scene at the end where it's him... It was his back to the with camera. his back turned apparently is a not him the actor oh. because it was a scene they f- were filming after he had already died, so I mean that's like I I think about that sometimes like I mean obviously it's a little bit more prescient with Carrie Fisher passing with Star Wars not quite completed and how that just how like I wonder if movie studios have a second script for if one of the actors or actresses dies. Yeah, you like, <laughs> what's the insurance like on that? Like, you're like, oh, yeah. my main actor's yeah. gone. Or what do you just do? recast them? And, and, like, and, and weirdly, it ha- it seems to happen fairly rarely. Like, I mean, I, I can't think of them. A- yeah, it does seem fortunate how little actors seem to die during the filming of their movies. Yeah, exactly. It does it's, seem fortunate. It's quite a, it's quite a break. <laughs> Man, those Hollywood people, they're just well, yeah, lucky. Don't, I, I don't know. I think about that sometimes. Like, well, yeah, what would you do? What would you do if you're like uh lead actor? Just I mean, I guess that happened kind of with Paul Walker during filming of Fast and Furious. True. Because they had to, I think there were a number of scenes where they his brother stepped in and then they kind of digitally enhanced his face to make it look yeah. more like. Yeah, they did. So I guess that's what you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, we yeah. answered our own question. Couldn't do that in 2000. Okay, so going to Gladiator, first initial thoughts the first time you watched it, Luke, do you remember those? I don't remember exactly when I watched it. I remember watching it around when it came out. So I would have been 13 when it came out. I probably watched it around age 14 or 15. That's probably about when I would have been allowed to be watching a movie like that. I remember loving it, thinking it was great. I've probably watched it one or two other times since then. So I would guess... Uh, when we watched it for this podcast, it was probably the fourth time I've seen it. And uh, this time watching it, it was like, oh man, this movie is so, so slick and fun. And we'll talk about this more, but just how many great like one-liners there are. Oh, it's it's kind just of. filled with great one-liners. Maximus and Proximo just live up to the Roman reputation of just like being... Like almost philosophers in their stance on discipline and thoughts about the world. So yeah, I, I loved it. I really, really loved watching this movie again. And I loved it when it first came out. What yeah. about you? Uh, so I was 12 years old and uh, my dad, it was the first movie that my dad showed me in kind of like this genre. And I don't know what you would really call this genre. I guess epic war. It's part action adventure, part mystery part history part intrigue like i saw this before i saw braveheart before i saw saving private ryan like any of those films this was the the film that i saw and uh he he, historical blockbuster i don't know that's a genre but oh well (laughs) my friend kendall once said david your your tastes are too blockbustery but (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i took it as a compliment 
I, as a young man, the nobility of Maximus, I think, drew me in deeply. Like, because he's he's so principled, and yet he's an amazing warrior. And this tale as old as time of revenge and, you know, avenging your loved ones who have been killed, but also his commitment to the idea of Rome and putting forward this political idea basically sacrificing himself for it and apparently because he'd actually never been to rome before like he was from spain like he lived in spain and i mean i I this is what i gathered from watching the movie because there's a line early in the movie where he says oh i've never seen it kind of thing and then they call him the spaniard the whole time yeah no i I, it's very clear that he had never been to rome before which is amazing with his commitment like he's a full-fledged roman citizen who's a general for Rome and he's never been there. Like that's, that's so it's kind of crazy and kind of cool to think about. I don't know if you remember this from your reading of uh, the Bible when we were young, but like Paul, the apostles is a Roman citizen and I'm very proud of that fact. And it seems like it is being a citizen of Rome was like very prestigious, particularly for people not in Italy. Yeah. It's just, it's a fascinating mythos that the, that the Romans seem to have created around the idea of citizenship, something that is still in play today, like the influence that Rome has through down the ages. I think it's probably, besides Greece, the most influential civilization when it comes to our governments and, our, mm-hmm. and, and the way that we view society in general. Well, it seems to me like the Romans kind of took Greek culture and kind of codified it. In laws a little yeah, bit Yeah, they more. took Greek ideas and created civilization. Yeah. Yeah, they expanded them a lot more. But And they, I mean, obviously not all of them. I think there's probably, they're obviously not totally flesh cultures, but the Romans inherited the Greek culture and yeah, used, and they, I mean, they just renamed the gods. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but they, they were very particular, they were their gods. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, I think that there is a, I mean, I'm not a historian, so this is going to fall flat for anyone who is, but it just seems to me how it's kind of like the Romans looked at what the Greeks were doing philosophically. The Greeks were kind of the incipient or nascent beginnings of what the Romans turned into like discipline and laws and systems. It's almost, it's kind of like... systematized yeah, it. Yeah, that's yeah. a good way of putting the, it. They the Romans systematized it. the Greek ideas. Which I think is important for the opening of this movie, because really what the opening of this movie is showing from a historical context is kind of the peak of the Roman Empire. Like, they've just defeated in the its technical, last... Yeah, and in, in, its, in its technical size and breadth. They just defeated the last of the, of the Germanic tribes, pushed it to its outer limits, mm-hmm. and... Peace was descending upon the empire, yeah. theoretically. This is like when Rome, Rome is at its finest. It's gone through that tumultuous period in the time of Christ when Nero became, and there was a lot of bad emperors in a row. Marcus Aurelius, considered by many to be one of the greatest of all the Roman empires, emperors, a philosopher king. Yeah, Marcus Aurelius, who is the emperor at the start of this movie, is generally considered to be one of the only political leaders ever who was also a philosopher yeah and i mean there's a people there's still a, read his meditations yeah, to this very yeah, day yeah all amen marcus aurelius there's the the school of philosophy called stoicism which is 
I'm not an expert on that either, but it's kind of like, it's the philosophy that embodies the idea of stiff upper lip. Bad things happen and you just kind of have to deal with it. Which really couldn't get more Roman. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> he, yeah. I, like, I and, think he's the Roman and Roman, Yeah, and, and Marcus Aurelius is one of the leading philosophers in history on Stoicism. I would say him and probably Seneca are the two that come to mind right away. And then there's probably more modern iterations that are, but I mean, you know... If, if you ever want to have your mind blown a little bit, read Marcus Aurelius's Meditations because everything you're reading, you have to remind yourself, this is a Caesar of Rome who's writing these things. This was written like, this is, 1,800 years ago. Yeah, and the most powerful person in the world was thinking like this. Like, it, it's kind of, it's something that gives me a little bit of awe and wonder, you know, that... Oh man! If only we could have the most powerful person in the world today who thinking thoughts like this. <laughs> yeah. Well, this was kind of. I mean, if you think I about mean, it, Marcus Aurelius was like <laughs> Socrates' philosopher king. Like, yeah. he's one of the only examples throughout history of a, a genuine philosopher king. Well, he was a, f- a king who was a philosopher. There's a slight difference in yeah in fair. what Plato meant no, as yeah. the philosopher king. And then a king who is a philosopher. We might be splitting a hair there. It's not really that important. But I'm just imagining now, though, if the most powerful person in the world, <laughs> Trump, <laughs> was what his meditations would be like. Well, I guess we get yeah, there. We get there. We, we, we could make a book. <laughs> just all the tweets. That he's yeah, wrote. I mean, it's just so funny to think that there was a Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> like, we can have leaders like that. I swear. <laughs> Anyway, for the one person who's never seen this movie, a very quick plot rundown. Russell Crowe plays Maximus, who is a Roman general, and the movie starts with them, I don't know what they're, I guess a legion or a couple legions of them fighting in Germany, or Germania as it's called at the time, to finish off the local people there. <laughs> and I like I like how that line that he says to one of his uh, lieutenants, he, they say, oh, you know, they're going to get slaughtered, why won't they give up? And he says, would you? Yeah. Would I? I know, and that's such a great, just one of so many of Maximus's great one-liners in this movie. He's kind of like the Mitch Hedberg of Stoicism. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they win the battle. Marcus Aurelius is there. Um, Marcus Aurelius reveals to Maximus in a one-on-one meeting, I guess, that he wants to disassemble the empire and return to a republic, and he wants Maximus to bring that to him. However, dun-dun-dun... Marcus Aurelius' son, Commodus, also joins him in the line, Joaquin Phoenix, and when Marcus Aurelius tells Commodus that this is his plan, again, they're alone, Commodus kills Marcus Aurelius, and then, so, the lineage passes on, and so now Commodus is the Caesar, and Maximus doesn't want that, so he goes to try and tell everyone that Marcus Aurelius wanted him to tell everyone else that he wanted to not have Commodus be Caesar, so then Caesar, or then Commodus says to execute Maximus. Maximus gets away because he's a badass. He rides a horse all the way to Spain, it looks like. All the way from Germany. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, let's be fair, is possible. I mean, they're not as far apart as like no, no, no. Canada. No. <laughs> and then finds out that Commodus had Maximus's wife and son killed very brutally. And so then he passes out. He gets picked up by slave traders who take him to, uh, I can't remember, Zarabuka or something like that, the name, which I is like in modern day Algeria. And so he's kind of seeing the wonders of all Northern Africa and the slave trade there. He gets sold to a guy named Proximo 
who trains him to be a gladiator. He fights in Africa, gets high status. Meanwhile, Commodus, back in Rome, wants to kind of... He doesn't really give a shit about any of the political responsibilities he has. He just wants to have fun. So he starts out the gladiator games at the Colosseum. And this invites all of the gladiators from around the known world to come to Rome. And that includes Maximus and his new group. He fights. He becomes a fan favorite at the Colosseum. He reveals himself to Commodus and Commodus's sister, Lucilla, who also knows Maximus. And I think they dated in the past. Yeah, seems, yeah, yeah. Or, There's definitely something happened in well, the past. They, they had a, a, a dalliance or two along the way, for sure. And then Commodus can't just kill Maximus because the people love him, uh, which, again, is a super interesting sub point of this movie. And so Commodus tries to figure out ways to do it. And then he realizes the only way that he can do it is if he kills Maximus. And so the end of the movie is Commodus and Maximus having a, a battle one-on-one in the Colosseum, which is probably the least historically accurate part of the yeah. movie. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that happened. But Commodus cheats by stabbing Uh, Maximus before the fight so Maximus is extremely injured during the fight but Maximus still beats him because he's a badass and then the movie ends with Commodus dying and then Maximus dying and the remnants and the secondary characters and Lucilla and the senators kind of picking up the pieces to figure out what to do next with Rome because the emperor is dead and also it's gladiator savior kind of thing <laughs> so yeah we don't know what I don't, happens after right? i don't think i missed did i miss anything important no, no i think okay. you you went through it in the way it needs to be gone through setting the stage for maximus one of the things that's so beautiful about this movie are his reveries about the afterlife yes and which yes. the movie starts with it's that iconic yeah, scene of him it, walking through the oh. field with his like his fingers going through the grain as he's walking along he's having a dream of his home yeah he loves his home i mean there's a, a legend in Rome about a general who retired and went back to farm, and they demanded that he come back and, and fight because he was that good. And funnily enough, in politics, that's often a, a story that's told, right? You want to be the one that's so good that when you retire, they come back and beg you to, to return <laughs> to the game. Has that right? happened to anyone? Uh, not really. Not many people, know. Most people get addicted and they never leave. But. <laughs> Boom roasted. <laughs> but the cool thing about Maximus is that there's not anyone that we're really aware of that he's he, he doesn't parallel anyone particularly in Roman history. He is kind of a um, collage of of a lot of, of the coolest mm-hmm. generals in Roman history. So. Yeah, and, and what I l- that's that's a great point because what I love about those scenes when he's dreaming, I guess. And seeing his kid and his wife and the color scheme is a little different. Like it's almost a little bit, it's like a painting almost that he's in. I realized again, watching this, this is a beautiful movie. Oh, like just like, the, yeah, the, I don't the, think the colors I, when of I was it. younger I appreciated the violence and the war <laughs> yeah. and, and the, the nobility the action, yeah. and the honor. This time you're right. Like the shots are great. Mm-hmm. The acting is great. And honestly, the script is really enjoyable. Like, yeah. Almost all of the dialogue is interesting. I think that this movie, because it's directed by Ridley Scott, is why it looks so good. Yeah. Like Ridley Scott might be one of the greatest directors ever to make a movie look good. I don't mean that like looks good, but it's not good. You know what I mean? Like it, it looks good because of the way it was made. His shots, his color schemes. He's just got to be the best at 
oh, okay, you want a beautiful looking movie? Get Ridley Scott to direct it. Yeah, kind of yeah, thing, you know? exactly. And I think it's in, this might be his best too. The, the Oscar certainly. Uh, yes, yeah. for sure. I'm glad you brought up that point though about leadership and political leadership because one of my first thoughts about Maximus is the scene with him and Marcus Aurelius one-on-one. There's a shyness Maximus has when Marcus Aurelius is trying to get him to take over the well, country. Basically a refusal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like Maximus... Because Marcus Aurelius says to Maximus, hey, you should be the leader of Rome. I don't want it to be my son. And then you can go and disband the empire and restart the republic. You can give the power back to the people, to the Senate kind of thing. And obviously, there's a lot of hesitancy and reticence on Maximus. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And it made me think a little bit about how he doesn't want the power, which is probably why he's a prudent one to have it. Well, I mean, that's exactly what Marcus Aurelius says. He's like, because you refuse it, don't you understand that's why you have to have yeah, it? Yeah, and what it made it me want to ask you about, because you're going to know a lot more about this than I will, because you spend a lot of time with people with power. Yes. <laughs> and you've spent yeah. a lot of time with politicians, and you've spent a lot of time probably either actively or passively learning about motivations and psychologies of people who are going to be politicians, who, are, who for one reason or another want to be in charge of something. What would you see as the beginning of a roadmap to making the idea of, oh, the we want the person to have power as the one who doesn't want it, not a cliche? Because as it stands right now, the incentive structure to be someone who gets power, the buy-in's too high for most well-adjusted private people who well, don't, yeah, okay. don't want to so, do that. So Maximus is the person who should do it. Like Everyone understands this, and he doesn't want it. What's step one in figuring out ways to make it that those people are the ones in charge. Okay, so this is a really interesting, this is something I think about all the time. And the biggest answer to that question is that, the, like you said, the incentives are, are awful. And a lot of the incentives are counterintuitive, but I'm going to go, this will be my little theory of what I think should be done. Uh, if, <laughs> you look at, if you look at <laughs> Singapore, I okay. actually love how Singapore does it because one of the biggest problems with politics today is it attracts power-hungry people, but it doesn't attract the people who would necessarily maybe be the most competent at accomplishing management or whatever because getting it jobs done it doesn't pay well. And people are like, "Oh, 160 grand that doesn't pay well." It, yeah, that's pretty good for the average person. We're talking about the people running our country. CEOs are making is that is that the MPs' average salary, salary yeah, is 160? 160 to 180. I think it's a little bit higher now. So so you get like the most talented people running companies as opposed to running for politics. And not only that, this is an even bigger issue. So there are some very talented people in politics and like incredible minds that, tr- that come to serve. But most of the ones that I've seen do that already had careers or they already had something and they come into it as a public service, literally as a public service. But the problem with that is these people are often highly intelligent, but they don't. This is why I love Gladiator. One of the things is like, well, they're always mashing and it's all about power and it's become corrupted. Well, that's because when you're playing the political game, when someone new comes in, they're not going to know who the players are. They aren't going to know how things need to go and they can't navigate it. Mm -hmm. So what actually needs to happen is we need to increase the value so that there's more competition so in singapore they pay their politicians equal to like the ceos of their major companies 
And there's a lot of movement between back and forth between the two. Now, Singapore for a long time was like a, a pseudo dictatorship and it's only recently moved into more democratic. But the idea behind that is that you want to attract your best and brightest into those roles to do it. And it works so well. Singapore 75 years ago was a swamp right now it's one of the major like it's it's got the best standard of living in almost anywhere in Asia Mm -hmm. and it was all done by rethinking how societies interact with power right and there's a great book called the fourth revolution I highly anyone interested in this topic read it that's basically making the argument that the east and when I say the east I'm talking about the Asia Pacific region they're beating us at government now because they've figured out how to make this work and, and how to make things efficient. Whereas we are still fighting over power. But let's take Canada, for example. Politicians in Canada are not subject matter experts. They shouldn't be subject matter experts. But because they aren't subject matter experts, we have a very powerful bureaucracy that basically are the ones that largely limit the decision-making power of the people coming in because they're not subject matter experts. So how do we react quickly and make decisions quickly as a democracy compared to how China is able to make decisions rapidly? And, we, and so democracy is up against this, uh, one of the, I would say, the greatest challenges faced ever, which is people are starting to say, well, it doesn't work as well. So how do we overcome that? And we need actually intelligent, thoughtful people figuring that out and producing a a roadmap to the general population instead of, it's like Eric Weinstein says, mm. we need better stories. Yeah. And we don't have good stories. Yeah, right now. Yeah, so, yeah. so going back to what you're saying, how do we change it? Uh, one of the things that I think is really important is that as citizens, we need to let people change their mind. This is essential, not just for our fellow citizens, but for our leaders. If we punish someone for whatever they may have thought in the past or for changing their mind when when they're presented with new information we're actually punishing the scientific method yeah we're saying you can't if you're wrong and you admit you're wrong then we're going to punish you for that that's the very opposite of what we should yeah, be doing yeah, yeah. to our leaders okay uh, there's something really good you said in there that i want you to expand on a little bit so when you said competition I immediately go like, well, politicians have competition, but then I thought about that more. Well, really, the competition is people in the other parties. <laughs> yeah, well, there's people, and there's competition within the parties, but the problem is, it's like if I'm given the if I'm given the choice between making a million dollars a year, having no public scrutiny basically compared to a politician, and 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 job security, mm-hmm. those three things no politician has. What am I going to pick? Yeah, the only benefit right now to being a politician is that you do have power sure and it's so, not lots of money so it's gonna it's it's not money and then your your life is is horrible because everyone is constantly waiting for you to stumble and and you have entire other parties with staffers watching you waiting for your smallest slip yeah so yeah. that they can jump Just on it in case you say the wrong thing at a bar or <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. or or you or maybe you stumble on your word or maybe you make a fool of yourself yeah like which seems likely given the species we are exactly <laughs> and so it's a really it's a hard job and the rewards are very limited so who are you going to attract yeah so you the model is not working then. the model doesn't work right exactly. yeah cuz like what what you're saying is in the the competition is ideological not competence or management based like in a company, you'd have competition, presumably not a hundred percent, but better probably than in government. Based on your competition would be based on 
competency because your competency helps affect your bottom line and your bottom line is again presumably this isn't capitalism working the way it's supposed to your bottom line is based on the value you produce for your clients or your customers or the people in your world that you service right yeah or maybe you are like really good at reducing costs so and you become a cfo yeah or, yeah and so then these people are incentivized to stay in the private sphere. <laughs> well, and <laughs> think about like what, solve is, what is the one incentive? So you have to think about the psychological makeup of someone who is more attracted to politics than to business or or to or to the not for profit sector. What is the one incentive that they have? Yeah. Power. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah, in Canada. And less so in the states because a lot of American politicians seem to get quite wealthy somehow. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder. Yeah. But uh, in Canada, and this is one of the great things about Canada, we have amazing political financing laws. Mm-hmm. So you can't get rich as a politician in Canada. Like, yeah. You'll, you just can't do it. So the pressure, I'm going to do this company to government analogy to make it work in my mind for me. The pressure in a company to keep good people ultimately comes from your investors, I guess. Or like down the stream far enough, your investors want to make sure you're running a good company and you're running a good company if you are you know meeting your goals you're making and profit. making profit yeah. right generally speaking i mean obviously there so then some. who who are the people that represent those who could put the right kind of pressure on government to make it that you would want better people in it well it should be the voters yeah I, I, like really we are to blame for the situation we're in <laughs> right whether it be in Canada where we seem to have a prime minister who, you know, can't... But, like, this is one thing I want to say. So, I hate hypocrisy. Yeah. And I I feel like the biggest problem with partisanship is hypocrisy. While the conservatives will attack the liberals for something, and but then they'll complain about the liberals attacking them for it. Yeah. And, and vice versa. The reason that that works is because people are not invested in their in, in politics. Mm-hmm. They don't understand that it matters. So so they kind of ignore it. Yeah. And then that's why fear, like that's why parties use fear and anger. Right. And and they prey on those emotions because those emotions are powerful and they will inspire people to do things. Mm. They those emotions inspire action. But going back to leadership, my dad said in a sermon once, and I think it was really profound, he said, if we keep demonizing politicians. Why are we surprised when we end up with demons? Yeah. If we keep saying, polit- like, how many people have you talked to who say, oh, all politicians are corrupt? Right. Well, if you assume all politicians are corrupt, yeah, pretty soon who's going to be prophecy. the people who want to run for politics? And I'm not saying Canadian politics is that crap. I actually think we have a really good system. But what I am saying is, if all the people are just like, oh, I hate politicians, they're all useless, they're all garbage. Yeah. Here's like a, maybe a, a slight aside on hypocrisy, but I think it might be a, something to think about for how we judge people in public life i generally like to make a distinction between active and passive hypocrisy because i think that every single person on the planet will fall victim to passive hypocrisy at some point in their life yeah because the brain is too complicated for us to be able to be totally 100% consistent about everything for always for all of time. Like there's just something you'll say at one point in your life that accidentally contradicts something you do later in your life. And it doesn't mean you didn't mean it when you said it. And it doesn't mean the thing you did later wasn't what you meant when you did it. It's just that you forget or yeah. <laughs> you you don't always remember every single thing of your own convictions. Even, the incentives you know? push you in a certain direction yeah. at one point. That maybe yeah. you rationalized you wouldn't so, be 
I I'm, I think there's a Nietzschean line somewhere that I'm paraphrasing where it's like, uh, well, you know, slow down a bit because on a long enough timeline, we're all hypocrites. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and so like that passive hypocrisy is more like figuring that out is like helps you give grace to people as opposed to more active hypocrisy is when you're using your hypocrisy to try and hurt someone or you're trying to be better or win. You know, maybe a good example of someone like that is like that Ted Haggard guy who was condemning all the homosexuals, yeah, huh. like that evangelical well, pastor who was condemning all of the homosexuals of the United States and then he got caught <laughs> with gay at, yeah. prostitutes. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the deliciousness of that aside. people. Pe- and the funny <laughs> thing is, like, there's a tendency, a psychological tendency in people to like to see people fail. Yeah. And when you rise to a place of prominence in, in politics, I think it's particularly yeah. striking that, that people like to see you lose. But like, this is why intention is so crucial. Like, figuring out what people are trying to do is ethically relevant to figuring out what you're gonna feel or like if you're gonna forgive them yeah you know yeah because hypocrisy by intention is completely different than hypocrisy by forgetfulness (laughs) you know because the intention is completely different and you know not to turn this into a thought experiment in the philosophy classroom but i think it's relevant like these philosophical and ethical distinctions on people's motivations and intentions are Super important when it comes to figuring out what we think about someone, especially so, in public so, so life. Let's, let's bring this back to the comparison between Maximus and, and Commodus, right? Because actually there is a, an, a very interesting line where Commodus is talking to Marcus Aurelius, and he says, you sent me a letter about the four virtues that I need. And then, and he's like, and, and I quickly realized I had none of them, but I do have virtues. And he's like, I have ambition. I have loyalty. And he, and he lists these four and it blew my mind because it reminded me of so much of the power-hungry nature of people. And, I, and I, I would even hesitate to say, or not hesitate to say, I would even say I have experienced that feeling in my life, that desire for power. And it is an intense desire. And there, I could talk for days about the psychological reasons for that and why I think people long for power and the matrixes they've built up in their own mind that make them desire that. But but the long and short of it is what Commodus has become is a man who wants power for power's sake. And yeah. that's it. Yeah. He doesn't care about the people. Mm-hmm. No. I he mean, doesn't care about Well, there's that scene in the father. Senate where he's just like, like, why am I here? <laughs> and why do I care about the plague-infested area of my, the Greek quarter? Yeah. I want to throw some games. Yeah. And that's the beauty of Gladiator. Mm-hmm. I think it, it shows the difference between Gracchus and the emperor. It's its constantly drawing parallels. I mean, yeah. maybe it's a little bit in your face preachy, but I think it isn't. I think it's done really well. It takes Marcus Aurelius, and like at the end of his life, he's basically like, I want to be able to like take stock. I, I'm, I'm entering the end of my life. I want to take stock of it and say like that what I did mattered, and the way that what I will have done will mattered will be to bring it back to Republic so that my mm-hmm. my crazy son, who I know is actually horrible, doesn't yeah. get power. To me, there are two, maybe three great things in this movie, like great nuggets of something to think about. One of them, which we'll talk about for sure more, is the more political, cultural, what do you think of a society that wants to do what the people of Rome seem to want to yes. do, which is to go 
watch people kill each watch other. people kill each other and not take care of the plague <laughs> like that seems to be what so that's what the another th- really cool part is the proximo shadows and dust i love that kind of stoicism he has too but to me the heart of this movie it, the, like the deepest lesson in it is the comparison between maximus and commodus yes. Yes. because what is so fascinating about this movie is how the obviously the gap in their social standing like commodus is the emperor of rome and and maximus is a slave and yet maximus seemingly effortlessly has everything commodus wants and there's nothing commodus can do to get it because commodus can't understand that the reason maximus has other people's love and respect is because he works for it without expecting it maximus wants the work more than the reward and commodus wants the reward more than the work and that's why it doesn't work for him well maximus doesn't even want the reward like that's this what, is I mean. what i like, love about him he, he's so disciplined in the functioning of things you know for him the fact that other people adore him is kind of weird <laughs> yeah, and, and, and he doesn't like it. In fact, he kind of hates the crowd, and he hates that he's he's like, I'm just... He's got a weird relationship with the crowd, doesn't he? Because he kind of needs them, but he kind of hates them, too. Yeah, uh, and, he, and he's kind of like, all I have is a mob. And then, and, then, and then she's like, well, the mob is power, right? That is power. That is Rome. And, and it's interesting that that's a phrase that comes up a number of times. But, but going back, I, I completely agree. And there's not very many scenes in the movie where they appear together. They actually only appear together for three times i think the first time is, or the, at the beginning of the movie when they're talking about who's going to take over and then maximus knows what commodus has done and he refuses to shake his hand yeah and that's a moment that i think that commodus decides to kill him right but then there there are other moments here that are interesting there's the moment in the arena where he turns around and says his name this is who i am mm-hmm. and i will have my revenge yeah and then the third and last time was the one that I wanted to point out. And the phrase that is that Maximus uses is, because Commodus says to him, do you think I'm afraid of you? And Maximus responds, not no, or yes. He says, he, he responds, I think you've been afraid your whole life. Yep. And okay, this goes back to this idea of p- these power hungry people. Why are they power hungry? What is driving them? And I think if you've, Boil it down to its simplest formula, it's that they're afraid. Yeah. Unless they're a psychopath, which I don't think Commodus is a psychopath. Like, he's got enough scenes where he seems to truly care about Lucilla and even Lucius and a couple other things that are going on. And his father. Like, yeah. he's very, I think he's very think honest he, and he, when he the, says, I, if you would love He me. also seemed to like Maximus. Like, yeah. at the beginning, before Maximus refused to bend the knee, as it were, to him. He seemed like he was his buddy, and he wanted to make it work with him. And he'd obviously <laughs> known him his whole life. Like, yeah. yeah. And so the resounding... I mean, if it feels weird to say it like this, but the resounding lesson of this movie is how the glaring distance between Commodus's social standing and the desires of his soul... Because all he wants, like, he wants to be Maximus. Like, you can just see, like, the way that the crowd, the way he talks about how the crowd loves Maximus, it's what he wants. And what, what that quote you said is so beautiful 
because Maximus sees right through Commodus. And Maximus is probable well, because he's the emperor, speaking truth to power, as it were. Maximus is the only person who tells Commodus the truth in the whole movie, you know? He sees right through him and he says it like it is. It's not till Maximus does that that anyone else does it too. Right. Because at the end when, uh, I guess it's Quintus, yeah, tells Quint- all of the soldiers to not give a, give sword, a yeah. sword to him, let Maximus kill Commodus, basically. The virtues that Commodus at the beginning of the movie says he has for himself are true, like there's something he can do, but they're not what he wants. And so like, in a way, the tragedy of Commodus, because one of the weird things about Commodus in this movie is that I actually, not as much in the second half of the movie, but the first half of the movie, I kind of liked him and I kind of felt bad for him. But then he made all these decisions that are terrible, then I didn't, right? But he kind of had this... Even Lack after of, he killed his dad, you still liked it. Uh, no, no, I didn't. The reason that this movie, I think, is so captivating with these two lead characters is because, again, it's effortless for Maximus because Maximus, we don't see this in the movie, obviously, but at some point in his life has done the work to discipline his body and his mind into not wanting frivolities, not wanting admiration, it's, he has an internal yeah, locus he, of control. Yeah, his yeah. internal combustion engine is all he needs, thank you very much. And so that's why he's able to be a great warrior. That's why he's able to be a great thinking general. So all of the attributes that Commodus wants, that Maximus has, Commodus can't have because Commodus is not willing or able to put the self-reflective time in and he just wants the esteem of others around him. It must be so doubly annoying for Commodus to hear the crowd chanting Maximus's name when all Commodus wants them to be doing is chanting his name. And on top of that, Maximus doesn't care that they're chanting Maximus's yeah. name. Well, okay, so... Like, how <laughs> fucking pissed off must that make <laughs> oh, Commodus? Man, well, and, and it pisses him off because it comes down to this fear thing. The teachable moment with that, though. That's the moment in a, a real life to learn not to double down in your own tunnel vision. Yes. And, and to realize that the crowd is fickle. Like, Maximus knows the crowd is fickle. He wants nothing from the crowd because he knows the crowd can give him nothing. Yeah. Commodus, because he's afraid... Because he longs for external affirmation. We see it with his dad. What does Commodus want from his from his father? Love. What does he want from his sister? Love. What does he want from the crowd? There's a great line where he says, if they don't fear me, how will they ever respect me? If they don't respect me, how will they ever love me? And he's talking about the crowd. <laughs> that could almost be a Michael Scott line. <laughs> right (laughs) but like what he wants is love and he's afraid that he isn't worthy of it but he see this is the this is the deep point i'm trying to make here though is that he can't get true love from anyone because he needs it right like yes he he fills his tank with the words of others and Maximus fills his tank by his own volition and thoughts in the world. And this is why the crowd likes Maximus more. This is why Commodus' sister likes Maximus more. 
this is why the the army likes Maximus more than Marcus Aurelius. Yeah. Because they admire Maximus. And and this is a perfect segue into, okay, what are your thoughts on Maximus? Like, just <laughs> as a guy. Maximus, I think probably there's going to be a common thread throughout the entire run of this podcast, which is like, the characters I like the most are the ones who are self-reliant in the Emersonian sense that I always bring up, right? And so there's like a common thread there that you'll, you especially will notice, I think, right? (laughs) And so I love getting another portrait of someone who's self-reliant because it just, it adds a little bit more context of like, okay, because it's not that Maximus never doesn't need someone else's help, right? Like it's not a literal like, oh, the moment one person helps you, you've succumbed to not self-reliance right like no the the thing is that maximus doesn't need any external validation to his behavior other than his army like the only people that it seems to matter to him are the people that he's responsible for and they only matter they don't matter in the sense that their opinions of him matter they matter in the sense that he cares about them Mm -hmm. he cares about them he has chosen to care about them And therefore, he cares. Yeah. And yeah, I think that, oh, that's right? exactly what I'm getting. Like that, that's what I admire about him. Mm-hmm. That's what I admire about people. When you can get to the point where you are an individual who you make, you are intentional. You are intentional about Thoughtful, the, yeah. on purpose, know what you're doing, know what you're standing These for. are the responsibilities I have taken. Yeah. These are why I have them. And this is how I will act them out. Mm-hmm. And I, I know my purpose, I know my vision, and I will and I will go towards that <laughs> despite what others say. Yeah. And and so that is such an important dichotomy between him and Commodus. And <laughs> I mean it's kind of funny. I actually think it's almost humor that Maximus is so deep and dyed in the wool in his self reliance that he can't even really he can't even really understand Commodus. <laughs> like he, yeah. can't, he can't even kind of get why Commodus would not be that way. And I mean, you got to think like Maximus, his whole life, he's a military man. He's disciplined. He's regimented. He's, but see, this is what I love about the way, like he's a loving person. Like he loves his wife. He loves his son. He's got the things he's most excited about are his farm. Yeah. And, and like he thinks it's the most beautiful place in the world. When he talks about it, he lights up. Yeah, he's not this dull soldier, right? Who's just dun dun dun, follow orders, give orders, dun, dun. like he's got a personality. But he he's very much of the like you see what Marcus Aurelius loves in him. He he's very much of that kind of stoic. What what would you even call it? Like stoic light. Maybe. Right. <laughs> Where he's, well, it's very much strength and honor, right? Yeah, strength honor and, matters to him a lot. And so I just, I think that that kind of, sta- I mean, it's what makes it so that he can even survive slavery, right? That he can even not, like, he's his, his social standing is stripped away from him. But this is actually super important. Because of the quality, because, because Maximus doesn't need the external bells and whistles, like his treasure goes with him wherever he is. So you could strip everything. You could strip his title, his rank, his 
job. You could make him a slave. And yet everything that makes Maximus valuable is still inside of him. And it goes with him wherever he does, as opposed to Commodus, where if you stripped Commodus, I mean, we see what happens. The moment you strip Commodus of anything of his social, all his value is gone because it's not inside Which of him. Which is so amazingly portrayed by Ridley Scott in that very ending scene where they're carrying Maximus's body out and they have just left Commodus's body there in the middle of the arena. Yeah. Well, and like, again, I'm going to quote him till the end of time, but Emerson has a great line where he says, my giant goes with me wherever I go. And the giant that is Maximus's character is with him as a general, but it's with him as slavery. And the gold is still there, which is why he's able to uh, rise up in the gladiator world. It's not just like he's a better fighter. Like he's a fun guy to hang out with. Like you see all the other slaves like hanging out with him. And even that drives Commodus crazy. Like not only is he a better fighter than me, he's more fun <laughs> okay you know okay so what is let, let's let's take a few examples of things that you admire about him as a character and then like how do we live that way not in the ancient roman times <laughs> maybe this is a horse long dead that will keep hitting but i really think it takes knowing what you care about like what are your value laden north stars and once you are able to kind of process that. I think everything, it's not like everything becomes easy, but like what you're saying with the, its intention and its thoughtfulness and it's like really, and mindfulness, like really being thinking about what you're trying to do. And Maximus spends his whole life doing this, right? And so when he becomes a slave, he's able to Okay, well, I got to focus. I got to discipline. I'll, like, there's that great scene where it's like, no, we have to work together. We're not going to survive this if we don't. We have to work together. And because of his poise and his assertiveness and his care, all these virtues, virtues that are competence-based, but also virtues that are community-based, that he's so good at fusing those together, they survive and they win, you know, which is the first part where the crowd of Rome starts to love him. And so I think that... The beginning of wisdom is knowing that you don't know anything. And the continuation of wisdom is figuring out what you care about, why you care about it, and in what any given scenario, the things that are happening, how they slide into those uh, values you have. And because like Commodus is, he's adrift. He's mentally and socially and ethically adrift, this whole movie. And his entire, Commodus's entire plausibility structure his entire reality his his whole worldview is based kind of the divine right of kings almost in the sense that he believes he's owed these things he doesn't believe that these things are earned the comparison i mean i know we're drawing the comparisons before we and and when we should be just talking about maximus but the thing that i admire most about maximus i think is he might not i don't think he is the smartest guy around like but he's the bravest and he knows that bravery is, is, a, is a high order value for him. Where is he during the battle? He's not sitting back waiting. He's right up there up front fighting, risking his life with his soldiers. Because if he's going to ask someone to do it, you've said this before, but I think it's a, essential in leadership. If you're going to ask someone to do something, you better be willing to do it yourself. Mm -hmm. And you better actually beat the one doing it if there's no good reason why you're not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you don't even ask someone else to do it. You do it. 
unprompted if there's no good reason not to. And even Marcus Aurelius is at least at the battle. Yeah. Right? Like Commodus is well behind safety <laughs> yeah, lines yeah. in his little carrying case. Yeah, arriving a little late. So so but going back to like so that that's leadership. But what I think is most fascinating is he has completely forsaken any notion that the world has anything to offer him outside of himself. Like, yeah. and, and what has he chosen that is himself? His, his family. Mm-hmm. Like, again, it's, it's a little bit, it's like threading a needle linguistically because it's not like Maximus doesn't need or engage with the outside world around him. It's that he knows his own terms and he's not going to play frivolous games with his environment that aren't on his terms. So as soon as it's like he's willing to succumb or take a take a back seat or a, or a step back to another person or another situation or another scenario or his environment as long as it's not violating any of his principles basically you know and so that's useful to notice too like cuz he's again he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't want to become the ruler of Rome right even though his caesar asks him to he's you know waffling a bit because he's trying because what he's doing in that moment is he's trying to figure out okay does i think this is what he's doing does me maximus taking over rome with my army does that violate the path i've set for myself as a strength and honor and virtuous life to live where are my corruptions like you, you know what he's doing i mean a call back to one of our really early episodes i think is he's doing a, a gandalf or a galadriel move where he's thinking like where they're thinking oh yeah maybe i want the ring but what will that do to me and maximus is he can't like he's really he doesn't make quick decisions like he does when he's fighting yeah. but he plans because he knows that he doesn't want to make a he's that he's anti-frivolous right like, and he doesn't want to make any frivolous decisions, which is why he needs to think very deeply about what he's doing. I want to take one thing back. I said it's not just his family. He also believes in this idea of Rome. Yeah. And and that the institution of the ins- Rome. And that principle is something that he sees as beyond himself. In fact, worth himself dying for. But then his highest order of value is his family because he once the service of Rome is done, what does he want? Yeah. Who is he? And all he wants to go do is go and be Well, Rome family. is the OG city on the hill. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's kind of like a... It, it reminds me of a little bit of a proto-American ethos of the shining light that's trying to make the world a better place. And well, and they, and they discuss it, what is Rome? And he's like, yeah. I've been all over the empire. And yeah. like, so it's, it's brutal out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, this This country rome is much better hey everybody dave and i just want to take a second to say thank you for listening making this podcast has been a great experience and we really appreciate all of you who choose to spend some time with us part of our goal is to be super open about everything we talk about on the podcast if you have any questions concerns thoughts ideas feedback clarifications or praise please send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Also, if you get your podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you get notified when a new episode is released. If you feel so inclined, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That is a really good way to help new listeners find the show. And please pass the show along to anyone who you think may enjoy it.
again, thank you so much for listening. Because as I'm sure you have gathered, we love talking. There's one other thing I wanted to bring up that I noticed that was cool about Maximus. And then I also want to read out his best lines because I feel like they need to be given the light of day. Um, There's a scene. It's really early in the movie. And it's when he's about to be executed and how he basically kills all the people that are trying to execute them. And there's a great scene or or section of a scene where the guy is trying to pull out his sword to kill him and he can't because they're in germany and it's cold and it's winter time so his blade sticks and maximus says something like he says frost frost makes the blade stick this got me going on a completely tangential thing that i think is useful to point out knowledge of reality is obviously helpful to winning as it is as it just is regardless of politics there's a massive overhead cost of any person or group who tries to not live in consonance with the natural world. And so I guess one of my hobby horses intellectually is understanding that, like we talked about in, I think it was Great Gatsby, the skyhook. Our skyhooks have to start with the natural world. And I once, Rod, I, I think I was in university, I ran this thought experiment. It's like, well, okay, you have two disparate societies who don't touch each other. One society is going to learn from the natural world and science, and one is just going to placate their gods. hundred years from now, which one's going to win? Right. <laughs> you know, right. like, it's it's such a no-brainer question. And yet, I think partly because of evolution and, and the weird social ticks that our species has, we don't tell the truth. We don't live to reality. We don't live in consonance with reality. We, 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 get, we have a hard time almost. And yet the blades still stick in the winter. And if that happens, your enemy can run a sword through you. So when the rubber meets the road, the, natural, the natural world is there before you, during you, and after you. And I guess it's kind of like, like I said, it's my hobby horse. It's like a PSA. Like I don't think you can ever ever, ever, ever do anything useful, good, utilitarian, thoughtful, important in the world that is in discordance with the natural laws of the universe and telling the truth about them. And now this seems like a no-brainer, right? I think (laughs) evolution is a great example. Growing up, it was hard for our families... Mm-hmm. To reconcile evolution. Oh, for sure. Well, they, you know? they didn't. They didn't um, Free will is a good one, too. Like, the biochemical, physical laws of the way our brains work. Like, that's... There's some really good arguments against free will. And it's... You got to take those seriously. And you have to work. You have to understand the farmers who know how soils work are going to have more food. And that's how you live longer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. not the ones who, like Lysenko, make up a brand new biology and herbology for the Soviet Union. Because that's the paradise they needed, right? I know I I belabor this point because I actually believe in it so deeply and think it's so important is that you can't do good in the world unless you understand how the natural physical world works and tell the truth about it in every instance, not just the ones that seem benign. I don't agree. You can do good in the world because what you're saying is you would need a certain intellectual capacity of understanding of the truth of nature and things in order to actually enact good. Right. Uh, which I don't think is true. Jordan Peterson hits it on the nail on the head here where he says, don't lie, or sorry, tell the truth and at least don't lie. Mm-hmm. Now, we're going back to intention. If you think something's true and then find out it's not yeah, and continue to say that's true, that's a lie. 
Yeah. But if you think something's true and you say it's true, you're not living in discord with your mental understanding of reality. Sure, yeah. So no. on a psychological level, I agree 100% that if you are actually living in violation of reality, like say you don't believe in gravity, you're going to have a, you're gonna have a rough <laughs> awakening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or there are certain groups that say that you should never do, do a blood transfusion. Yeah. Well, you are living... You're you're basically putting whatever it is your belief is ahead of reality of of the health of your of you and your and your family. Mm-hmm. So I agree. Like mm-hmm. when you when you deny reality, but the problem is that reality is hard to access, and it is filtered through subjective through our subjective selves. Right, and therefore what you might say this is what nature is. Uh, yeah, reality. Well, one thing. Reality is much less harder to access now than it ever is. We have the internet. If you have any questions about anything, you can just read about it. Yes, but again, it is still filtered through subjectivity. Okay. I wouldn't say you need, again, 100% consonants in the literal sense of, like, I think you, can't, was- you can't do good until your brain comprehends every single fact about the natural world. But... It's more along the lines of how you are going to go about figuring out problems about the natural world. And then when there's someone, especially in the political realm, but in social too, it's not just political, it's social life. Someone who is talking about or getting in the way of something people already know is not the case, given our knowledge about science and the natural world. That's what I mean. That's when you have to stand up for the truth. Yeah. Okay. So let's take. I'll. I'll here's a truth that I'll stand up for that won't be very popular. <laughs> okay. Here's a truth. The climate's changing. We know based on all the data from science that things are getting warmer. Yeah. Here's another truth. Canada can't do anything about it. And it doesn't matter what government you elect. And it doesn't matter if we all shut off our lights and lived in the dark and the cold. Yeah. We would not have any impact on climate change. We're, right. We are not a big enough contributor. Right. Now, that's not something that people want to hear. That's not reality. Of course. I'll give you another example. I I honestly think that's making my point, though. No, no, (laughs) sort of, sort of. But enough people believed a man who said that you could do that, that he stays on as prime minister. And so while the reality of the the science, the, the reality of nature is one way. Right. People's belief is a very powerful thing. Yeah, well, I think if you run that simulation to its end, I think that that's, again, making my point. Because I would say, well, if you start having strictures based on citizens of Canada having to get high levels of tax or whatever, or only one-time use straws or whatever, you know, eventually you're going to go down far enough where you are punishing people for economically indulgence yeah yeah and then the climate is not helped by that because of china india russia whatever right america america all of it to me again that is all of that rests in not what i would call the natural world problems like i'm not saying there aren't problems in the social level that needs social analysis and figuring out because again on the other side of the ledger you could have someone like you who says 
climate change is happening. I don't think Canada right now can do anything about it because we're not a big enough player. That's very different than the person who says, no, it's not changing at all. (laughs) Like that's a completely different starting place to problem solve from. (laughs) Yes. You know what I mean? I think what I'm trying to address here is I think that subjective understandings of reality and their alignment or not alignment with truth have more to do with whether you think you're, whether you're being honest with yourself about your alignment with reality and less to do with your actual alignment with reality. Uh, I would say that's probably true until you think about it for five seconds. (laughs) Okay, go on. And then the moment you think about it for five seconds, you're like, well, I actually do use my eyes to not walk out on the street if I see a bus coming. And uh, do I really think that bus isn't coming? (laughs) So I think once it gets, now you can say, oh, it's just my subjective reality to see that bus coming to stops. But it's like, well, okay, but if that bus hits you, your nervous system is going to have such a trauma that maybe your heart stops. And that is all known through the natural world. Like there's no mysteries there. Right, right. And so if I wanted to straw man or caricature the opposite of what I'm talking about, is like, well, if you really (laughs) don't, Think if you think everything is subjective, you might as well just run in the street when the buses are coming, and no one does that. Right. Who isn't suicidal? Right now, so right. I'm, this is why I'm saying if you think about it for five seconds, like we obviously have precedence every day for living in something approximating in, an in, objective objective universe. Right, and and being, people don't um, take their cars to the grocery store when they need a mechanic. <laughs> right, right. They, they don't go to a restaurant when <laughs> they break their arm. Right, they go to a hospital. So I, th- I actually think in survival moments, people's true... They align, they try to align, they align with as much the reality world. as yeah. possible. Because I actually think the twin towers of Western civilization are philosophy and science. And the philosophy of science is maybe the golden crest of, oh, of the right, less right. wrong pursuit, right? I guess my point is that less wrong pursuit. I mean... We might not objectively complete like you like you described this as the nervous system could shut down in the heart. We don't think that we 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 approximate. Right? We're like, I know that bad things will happen if I get in front of a bus. Yeah, right. On a on a fundamental level, like well, we want to avoid that. If someone explained to you, like in a anatomy class or a biology class, like okay, if you got hit by a bus, here's actually how you die. They go through the steps. I know you wouldn't, and I don't think anyone could ever realistically be taken seriously if they say well that's actually not true right (laughs) like the person who says that is just kind of not invited to the conversation of adults (laughs) this is why you need this is why you need to read the uh the wait but why thing because he talks exactly about that you know like uh there's a different culture between the less wrong view of the world and the dogmatic view of the world yeah it's not that you can't say something interesting about how the nervous system shuts down like, sure, you could have a theory like, well, yeah, actually, when the bus hits you, your nervous system does shut down, but it's because of the thetans <laughs> escaping, right? It's like, well, okay, where are they? Let's met- Like, the, the, the beauty of the scientific method, done properly, I would say, and argued properly philosophically, is not that you, you don't a priori count out ideas, you a posteriori count out ideas. So what that means is that you don't assume something's wrong, you test it. So you could yes, do experiments yes. like, well, how do you measure thetans? Well, the, the Scientologists <laughs> will tell you, but like, them, yeah. yeah, well, we don't see them under any microscope and we don't, like, there are no sense data available. And this is, okay, so I think sense data is so important in all of this. And so like tying it with Maximus again, 
because he understands how the natural world works, he's able to survive. Well, and even live better. even because he understands how a soldier would normally be executed, and therefore understands that he can manipulate that in such a way that he can yeah. actually stop the soldier mm-hmm. from killing him, mm-hmm. as opposed to the other way, yeah. where he wouldn't be able to. That's quick thinking about, like you said, yeah. the way things happen. Yeah. Now, I mean, and that's okay. So then there's there's the material argument where it's like, well, any society is obviously going to be materially better well off if it adheres to the laws of nature as best as possible, because that's how you make technology. That's how you under like metal and how to use electricity, like understanding how it works allows you to use it so that we have things like electric power in our houses and internet and whatever, right? The thing is, Wi-Fi is not magic. It might seem like magic, but it's not. I think, again, we might be violently agreeing because what I'm saying is not that you can't do good if you don't understand every natural happenstance or occurrence in the world. But it's the dogmatic assumption that any person's way is the right one, regardless of what I would have to say we know from how science works. Well, and this is where I would say I would disagree with you, because I think there's a lot of good that has been done by people who you would probably argue, and I think I might as well, argue we're doing it for the wrong reasons. So let's take uh, Mother Teresa, for example. Right. I think it's pretty unquestionable that she did a lot of good. I I don't know. I don't know about that, because I'm not as studied enough about her. Well, okay, she alleviated suffering. She alleviated a lot of suffering. Um... Maybe. For people who otherwise wouldn't have had that's their suffering alleviated. I don't know. I mean, Hitchens wrote a pretty well, scathing book about I know about he's her your and, hero, but he's, and, I don't think he's necessarily well, he, right on this one. He but, made points about how she took money from the Duvalier family in Haiti, who were dictators and didn't right, right. I particularly... Mean, like you said earlier, like who knows what everyone kind of, might do something hypocritical, right? And, and only pointing out people's hypocrisies isn't necessarily a good critique of them. Oh, I don't know. If taking money from a dictator of a country isn't exactly passive hypocrisy like it'd be pretty hard for a person to take my well not hard maybe for the president of the united states but okay it'd be pretty hard I'll for a person to take money because you have <laughs> emotional attachment to this particular one um no, i'm not i'm making i'm making a tangible point if you take money from a dictator i don't think that's passive i think that's conscious like i don't think you okay, could so, take so- money from putin or the guy from china and shrug off their human rights abuses and, but you have a whole, you have a big ethical thing to weigh there, right? Because then it's like, are you, if you're doing good with that money, I mean, I'm not saying, I don't believe in karma. I don't believe there's like a, some weight in which you've, you know, now pressed it one way or the other. But I mean, if you're doing good and someone comes and says, I'm going to give you money to keep doing good, are you going to say, no, I won't take your money because you do bad somewhere else? I don't know. Uh, well, that might be an opinion, but I, I bet you people in Haiti under, Papa Doc Duvalier had a different opinion than that based well, on what Well, they probably didn't doing. like him very much. I agree. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's let's use, I mean, the invention of the hospital. Uh, not a scientific invention, a, a, an invention by the church. To live out the, the teachings of Christ. Right? Sure. Just to look after the suffering. Okay. Right? By and large, I think we can agree that that was probably a good. Why, was it done for a align yourself with reality reason? No. Uh According to, to to the natural world, let's say. Yeah, I would say in that scenario, it was not a conscious in alignment with reality, but it still was in, re- in alignment with reality because the hospitals did develop medicine and medicine was developed through science. 
Yes, no, I agree, but I guess I guess maybe we are violently agreeing. But my <laughs> my contention is that what they they weren't doing it because they were trying to align with or well they were doing it because they were trying to align with what they thought reality was. Mm-hmm. I think you would argue, and correct me if I'm wrong, that they they were not actually aligning themselves with reality in in their intention or their their rationale for what they were doing, but they were aligning themselves with reality in their actions. Yeah, which is more important. So, so okay, I, I think I see where you're going. Because the thing is, the way you act in the world is, at bottom, the most important thing any of us do. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so actually, this is an interesting point, and I think we see this with Maximus, so I think this is important. Um, Maximus has the arrow in his hand. He could kill Commodus on the floor of the arena, and he doesn't because Lucius is there. Yeah. Right? I mean, that at least that's the, that's what the we're, subtle clues yeah. that we're, we're given, right? Okay, well, well, why doesn't he do that? Like, is it does he have a, a fundamental? He must have some kind of principle to not want to do violence, and or then there's of course the fan theory that it's his son, whatever. Mm-hmm. Because nature teaches us this: that life is brutish and short; that the strong do what they will, and the weak do what they must, and that is the nat- natural order of things. Uh, that's part of the natural order of things. Part of it is also the communitarian aspect of our right, evolution. Right, the ants working together. Yeah, and, or... and, and the love. Like, I, I, I don't think love is just a fairy, ethereal... Like, I think love... Is, like, the, the, the components of love that you could articulate in the way people behave are evolutionary advantageous. So part of that is Commodus... Or, I'm sorry, Maximus. I, I, I'm just spitballing, like, his own motivations here. Maybe he doesn't want to kill Commodus in front of Lucius because he might understand the psychological scarring that could leave on a young man and one he cares about and he doesn't want to do that to him. Maybe he also thinks that Lucius is in danger in this moment. Like maybe if he stabs Commodus, Lucius gets killed in the fray as well. And he doesn't want that to happen because Lucius is an innocent and he doesn't want to die. And it's partly biological that you don't want the young people around you to die, but it's also ethical, which I think our ethics are very intimately tied to our evolved psychology as well. So the hospital example is a good one. I, I really think that's a good example of what I'm saying because. Well, I, I, I see. I, and I agree. I, I, but I guess my, my question naturally, why sh- should we care for one another? And I guess your argument would be, well, we evolved to care about one another because that is a survival mechanism that has resulted in the creation of civilization. Is that what you would say? Well, it's a boon and it's a blessing and a curse. Because it makes us, we care about people, but we only care about some people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so it's a, it's a, it's a trade off of we have the moral sense to care about others. It's really hard to care about seven billion others. <laughs> you know, yeah. like well, we like, can't. That's it's, where it's our emo- oh, we don't have the capacity. That's where our our neocortex needs to come in and our frontal lobe for problem solving at a systematic level. We are creatures that the natural world has so pressurized through our environment to evolve where we have the capacity to think at the philosophical level so it's not that we should do it it's that we can do it and so the moral arguments that people of the church who invented hospitals would make are human life is important now is that true it's not true in the same way that H2O is a water molecule is true, but it's true in the arena that it plays in, which is human social life together. What I'm saying is that 
any philosophical or ethical or social theory is legitimate as long as it's downstream and doesn't violate the upriver natural world. So <laughs> imagine the hospital, <laughs> I say this with quotes, where the ethos of the people is, okay, well, we really need to figure out how to kill every single person who gets into here. <laughs> yeah. Like that ethos would die. <laughs> Literally. It would right. die out if that was your goal. So it's very complex, but I'm really trying to hammer home that every idea of the world needs to be downstream from not violating the natural world. And I think that it, it takes a lot of humility to know what we can know about the natural world, how we would go learn about well, it epistemically. I mean, the, the basis of the the less wrong, I, I like calling it yeah. ethos, is that uh, you have to be humble. Always. The basis of the scientific method is you have to be humble because someone hopefully is going to come along and disprove you. Like yeah. that's the whole point. And, and it working, it doesn't work this way, but it working at its best yeah. is that. Now, and the reason it's, you could always, you could put the world's smallest asterisks beside the theory of gravity and say, maybe this could be wrong one day, <laughs> but there's just so much evidence. Yeah. So like, I think pragmatically, all scientists and scientific endeavors take into account the level of evidence for any given theory and uh, go from there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, know what I mean? I mean? Yeah, that is what they do. I guess what I'm pushing back against is I think you can do good without understanding that. But perhaps you are following what you've just described unconsciously. I guess the bigger problem here is that we haven't defined and can't and can't define good. Yeah. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's all kind of normative. <laughs> I think you're right. And again, the hospital is a great example of this cuz hospitals are invented by people who didn't understand everything about the natural world or even a little bit of it necessarily, and yet they still did good. I'm just saying you can't do good if you are in violation of the natural world, not just yeah. <laughs> not understanding okay. of it. I, I, can, I can get by and, that. And point. I think that it's not always easy or it's not always common, again, for political or social or power-hungry reasons, people don't tell the truth. The Soviet Union is a great example. They had this guy, Lysenko, who I only know a little bit about, who was their, like, chief... Uh, what would you even call him herbologist or chief botanist maybe like he was in charge of their growing their food and he had an alternative theory of how to grow food while well, they fucking starved because they didn't grow food because it doesn't matter what sort of propaganda paradise you say soil rotation and yeah, we learned good, that a long <laughs> good, time good ago. fertilizer doesn't <laughs> give a shit about what your communistic aspirations of paradise <laughs> and utopia are right yeah and that's what i mean it's not necessarily that you have to understand it. It's just that you can't violate it and you can't lie about it either. And then just <laughs> finishing with Maximus, I do want to read his lines yes, because okay. he's got at the beginning when he's talking to Quintus, strength and honor. Which is consequently actually what Romans would say to one another. Yes, which is beautiful. Which I, I mean, now we can go into this maybe a little bit later, but one of the things I love about Roman culture is that when you really study it, you realize their paradigm of thinking was so different than ours. Yeah. Like, I know. The things they valued yeah. were not the things we necessarily value now. <laughs> uh, he, he says this to his troops before they start fighting. What we do in life echoes in eternity. 
that line is just beautiful oh, because so it's beautiful. it resonates so much with me because of how much I feel inspired by people who've written, and that echoes to me in eternity. You know, yeah, I love that. His great line: "Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here?" And he's like, "I don't know. I don't really know and what then to he think." Spits. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know what to think about his ambivalence with the crowd. Like it, to me, that's the one part of Maximus that he just kind of ignores the crowd. Like, well, he, I think it goes back to what you were saying. No, like the crowd. He doesn't need the crowd. Yeah, he, he doesn't, doesn't want he, because that doesn't really fit into his like whether the crowd likes him or doesn't like him isn't what matters to him. Yeah, that's true, and that's uh, to his credit. All of that. The one thing where I think could be the next problem for him to solve if he was still alive is he still doesn't know what to do with the crowd. Like he knows he he is fine ignoring them. <laughs> he doesn't like them, but they don't go away because he ignores them. Right? A, a good point, and I think something that. Actually, if we're going to have a Maximus flaw, is that I don't know that he he's actually, let's say, aligning himself with reality <laughs> of politics and how the world works. Like his philosophy works really well for one guy. <laughs> Not so good when you're dealing with, with crowds. Well, his philosophy would work really well if everyone was as thoughtful as him. Exactly. <laughs> Which, I mean, that's as utopian as, uh, as the Soviet Union was. Uh, Yes, I would say it's slightly less utopian because I think people can change and think. If you reach people at their hearts, they can start thinking more. And I think that that's kind of the goal of education is to get people to think more about themselves, not just the world around them. I, we talked about this a little bit with Tom Sawyer, like the the, the person who's able to control themselves. Yeah. Obviously, there's a genetic and an environmental, I think, part of the goal of living a good life is maximizing the environmental aspects of any of human life to bring out that Maximus Tom Sawyer part in yeah. people. Yes. <laughs> and that isn't utopian. No, no, no. Well, I mean the utopian part would be that everyone would get there, but the desire to get it in as many people as possible, I think is, is one of the, is one of the most noble. The, the democratic process. Yeah. The, the, the humanist project. Yeah. I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. <laughs> God, such a badass. <laughs> the time for honoring yourself will soon be at an oh, end. Oh, I love that line. So he says that to Commodus. I think the part of this movie that, the most satisfying part of the movie is how Commodus's facade is pierced through by the way Maximus talks to Commodus. And the, the best part is Maximus isn't, he's not ridiculing He's not mocking Commodus. He is just telling him the truth. Straight up analyzing yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now, other some other thoughts about Commodus. Yeah, it was interesting because my most unreflected notion about Commodus, because before we watched this movie for this podcast, it'd probably been at least 10 years since I've seen Gladiator. Like, it'd been a long time. And I think in popular culture and in just my memory, Commodus is a snake. He's just this awful, awful, awful guy, and that's it. Now, he is. He's pretty awful. But I was surprised at how much pity I had for him in a lot of this movie. And the pity, I think, stemmed from the fact that he was so out of control of his own appetites. Like he didn't have the constitution, the fortitude, and the self-possession. And I just, I feel bad for that kind of person because I feel like they don't know what they're missing. 
And it's even harder because Commodus kind of does seem like he knows what he's missing because he sees it in Maximus and he wants it and he can't get it. And so that's why he was like a kind of an See, object of pity for me. I wanted to say something on that because I think it's interesting. I don't think he wants to be Maximus. I think he wants what Maximus... He wants the things that Maximus gets as a result of who he is. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. That's right? what I meant. I don't think he wants to be Maximus. No. But he wants the love yeah. of his sister. He wants no, the love sorry, of you're his right. father. I was, I was using that as shorthand. Right. But you're right. Because, because, he, because he could be Maximus. Yes. He just doesn't want to put that work in. <laughs> it, to me, he's such an edge case. Like he's the most interesting case of this type of person because he is very much skirts the line of, well, can he or can't he? Part of the time, I'm like, oh man, just there's something about him that he has been failed and he can't figure out how to be better. And then part of the time, you're like, well, no, he's pretty conniving. Like he can use his brain. Oh, he's smart. Yeah. And, and, and okay, so, and so he can do it. This goes back Sometimes. to what I think is the, the most important scene, and this is going to sound funny, but the most important scene in the movie. And it's actually when he's talking to his sister, and he's like, will you stay with me? And she says, still afraid of the dark, little brother. And he says, always afraid. Always been afraid I've of the dark. I've always been afraid yep. of the dark. And that scene uh, juxtaposed to him standing there and says, do you think I'm afraid of you? And he says, I think you've been afraid your whole life. Yeah. What is it that's holding Commodus back? It's fear. Yeah. And it's fear that it's fear that others won't give him what he wants. But it's as you pointed out a little bit earlier, and I think is essential, it's because he wants others to give him love that he's not getting the love. Yeah. I know. I It is a vicious circle. There's an Ouroboros going on here with him and his fear. But there is a moment in the movie where I feel like he shows possession enough that he is able to choose stuff that really like the so the moment <laughs> it's not funny it's kind of okay no it is totally funny the moment in the movie where i hate commodus or i think he's crossed the rubicon if you'll pardon the joke given the situation <laughs> cross, very contextually co- i like yeah, it <laughs> cross the rubicon ethically is not when he kills <laughs> Oh boy! Here <laughs> Not we when go. he kills okay. Maximus's wife and son, although obviously he is like he orders it. But for me, it's when he uses their memory to be cruel to Maximus. That's where he crosses the Rubicon. Be- because well, it's where he crosses it mentally. Like because even killing Maximus's wife and son is again rationalized in that fear. Like, I think, like, there's a, it's not, it's not excused. Like, it's not like, oh, if that happened in real life, you wouldn't go to trial and go to jail. Like, you'd still have a debt to society kind of thing. But I think he's, again, only killing Maximus's family because of kind of that fear base that we talked about. But when he, like, when he uses their memory or their death and, like, their squealing and their, you know, they, the soldiers had your, their way with your wife and, your son squealed like a pig when we stuck him to that cross. That's not fear that he's like, it's that's not cruelty. Yeah, that's cruelty. And and again, I like to borrow R- Richard Rorty's, the philosopher's take on the liberal is the person who abhors cruelty above all else. And because I also hate cruelty, I'm like, okay, well, you are, <laughs> you're talking to a slave <laughs> who has no power, who you could kill at your whim and you are torturing with the thing that he loves that you tortured, that you abused, and you 
didn't treat as human. And that's not Commodus as fearful. That's Commodus as tyrant. But I think often that. fearful people are cruel because it's a it's a a, a means of of control. Okay, but I but I, but, but, I, but I want to go back to the scene because I think it's hard I, to see that aspect though in the way that the, the the thing that is different. The reason why I think this is like a different psychological category is because Commodus is getting joy and glee out of but torturing. See, I don't think Maximus he's getting joy mentally. and glee out of it. He's try he is trying to taunt Maximus into action that he because this is what I love this scene because how does he respond? Right, he turns around. Like this is this is after he's killed or not. He refused to kill the the hero of the of the Colosseum. Right, they march out. This is the second time he's marched into the arena with the Praetorian Guard and surrounded Maximus. And what does he want? He wants Maximus to go after him. He wants Maximus to attack him so to give that, him an excuse to that give he him an excuse kill him. to kill him. Yeah. And how does Maximus respond? Maximus perfectly reads the situation, turns around, and that's when he says, the time for honoring yourself will soon be over. And turns around, and people, re- they have just, the, the Praetorian Guard has just seen how Commodus is is tempting yeah. Maximus. And then he walks out of the, the, the shield circle, and they let him go. Mm-hmm. And why do they do that? Because they see the strength, even when the thing that matters most to him. Mm-hmm in the whole world, is being used to tempt him into an action. It, okay, because we're trying to psychologize someone, there's no way to know for sure. I felt like enough of, and this is great acting again by Joaquin Phoenix, which again, if you see the Joker, he does this so well. The kind of half smile, the flittering of his eyes in that scene it just suggested to me this is the demeanor of someone getting some joy out of reminding Maximus of, of, hurting, the, Maximus. of hurting Maximus. And so, again, maybe it could be an even higher level of complexity where there is an interplay of his fear and his cruelty in Maximus. But again, because even... So in the scene where Commodus is blackmailing Lucilla... When he finds out that Lucilla is the busy bee... What have you been doing, yeah. busy little bee? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I see the same half smile and the same glee in his eye at hurting her in this situation because of what he could do to Lucius. All the illusions that Commodus is making here is like, well, if you don't tell me about the plan about Maximus, I'll kill your son. <laughs> and, and it's funny because Lucius actually seems to yeah. understand now, that as well. And, and I think, who knows? Who knows? There's no way to prove it. The facial expressions of Joaquin Phoenix Commodus in those scenes makes me think that he's getting some sadistic joy out of it, not just he's trying to save some part of his psyche or his skin from the attention of others. And it's it's almost certainly both, I would say. Like, to be fair to both of us, it's probably both. Yeah. And it's hard, like, you couldn't... There isn't enough evidence no. in the movie to know which is tipping Why the he's scale. Why he's doing what he's doing. Uh, yeah. Except maybe, maybe you're right, because there is some scenes where his bad actions seem entirely out of fear without the glee. Like he doesn't seem to get any joy out of killing his dad. No. Right? No. He doesn't seem to get any joy out of what we don't see, but he he wants to help Maximus. Like once Marcus Aurelius is dead, he gives Maximus a chance to come back into the fold kind of thing. So I don't know. It's just, 
maybe we'd have to ask Joaquin Phoenix what he thought when he was acting yeah. those yeah. scenes <laughs> because I just it might be we're reading too much in, but his acting is so layered in those scenes where he's scared and joyful. Maybe that's just a, a psychology I don't I can't even comprehend. Yeah. <laughs> how you could hold that many contradictory things kind of going on, you know? But it's beautiful. Like, it makes for a beautiful character. He's not up to the challenge of leadership. He just wants to play games. He wants to put games on for the people. He just wants them to love him, but he doesn't yeah. want them to love him for his hard work. I think that's the big thing. He's not about working hard. He's about easy fixes to problems. Yeah. And he has his irrational love for Lucilla, so he's wavering on that. Like again, well, he's and then not. Ben, and then says you're going to bear my son. Yeah, so. he's not a strong soul. He had. Now this is interesting about Commodus. He has to use threats because no one actually respects him. You see at the end too with the soldiers not giving him a sword. Right when when he needs their help, he, they're not going to give it to him. And I know we've probably talked about this a lot, so it doesn't need any more uh, much belaboring on my part, but. If you have to use authority to get action, you really don't deserve either. I don't think, you know, he only, people will only listen to them, to Commodus if he, well, I mean, obviously the soldiers listen to his commands because he's the emperor, but the people he has personal relationships with, they seem to only listen to him if he's threatening or insinuating a threat to and them. And they do not respect him and they do not love <laughs> no. him. And they, they no. in fact, his own father's like, this guy's, Horrible, and I need to make sure he never has yeah. his hands on power. And the tragic element is Commodus wanting that but can't get it because of his own behavior. The non-tragic element is that he seems to have at least a part of him that could choose to be different and then doesn't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, and he knows he only has to beat Maximus in the eyes of the people, so it doesn't matter if he cheats. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right? Like yeah. so because he stabs Maximus in the final battle. So it's like, well, just as long as the people think. Like it's all superficial. He's not learning all the way through to the end. And watching this movie, the final scene between Maximus and Commodus, where uh Maximus kills Commodus, and it's like kind of fast. Like it's not a really drawn out scene. Uh it's like probably like a minute and a half, two minutes. I was just Commodus dying, ch gurgling, choking, and then Maximus dying. I thought this is this is one of the best villain death scenes in a in cinema. I think like the the art, like if you think of the trope of the the villain dying, Commodus dying is as good as any yeah. in any movie yeah. ever. I think it's so so, it's so fulfilling, yeah. but it also has the tragedy of Maximus dying, but also the. Yeah, the and complexity not, of emotions you feel. It's not in that overly moment. dramatic. It's not drawn out. It's not made like, oh my gosh, is he. Like, it, it, the, the great part is too, like, Commodus kind of has. He has the disadvantage the whole time, doesn't get a sword, has a sneaky other sword, but Maximus, who's hurt, <laughs> just like, just well, whatever. <laughs> I'll still just put kill. this in your throat. Yeah. <laughs> So I liked that realism. Like, they don't make it close. It just kind of seems like Maximus is slowly dominating. And and it's cool because there is an earlier scene where Commodus is fighting, so it's not like he can't fight, but he can't fight with Maximus, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. Was there any other thoughts about Commodus you had that we haven't talked about yet? I think, okay, so there's the scene where Commodus is coming in to Rome uh, in, in a triumph, of, almost as if he'd conquered germania and the and right. Gracchus and the other senator are talking and i think 
I think this movie really has a great insight on power because Gracchus says, you know, he's he's he he's going to be terrible basically, and the other senator says, "Oh, he's young. Give him a chance. And, you know, I yeah. think he'll do quite well." And Gracchus only says, "Quite well for you or for the people." Yeah. And then there's another line. I guess we could talk. We're gonna, probably going to talk about Gracchus a little bit, but that moment where people like Commodus are propped up by people who benefit personally from them being in power mm-hmm. but the people don't benefit and it's just it i mean it's a very insightful it's a peek behind the curtain yeah into the realization that the reason people like commodus stay in power has very little to do with commodus and a lot to do with that little one liner where it's like i think you'll do quite well yeah and then you see throughout the movie that senator's around he's serving him he's doing things but we, I think we can all giving him information yeah. that he can use to blackmail everything, or like an an idea of a way to go about finding out who's treacherous yeah, to him ex- and who isn't. Exactly, and and we see that it's men like that who prop up incompetence because right. Commodus is incompetent, but this man is profiting from his incompetence and therefore more than happy to help him mm-hmm. maintain his position uh, because he's a confidant. Yeah. So he's got his ear, and he's, I don't know, he's like a, the Roman version of a lobbyist, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe, yeah, like a really bad. A lobbyist tend to be, I mean, I'd, I'd say more of a, there are people who, okay, so going back to what you were saying about Mother Teresa and taking money from a dictator, I would say people whose power, real, who, who, who try to maintain a person in power simply because it benefits them, and actively promote incompetence for their own aims, I think are some of the most evil people in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what was that? I think his name was like Fal- Flacco or Falco, that yeah. senator who was the... He, well, he's a sophist, right? He's a, he's a flatterer of Commodus for personal gain at the expense of the well-being of the polity. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fuck you, dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other main characters the two quotes i wrote about marcus aurelius that he said there's always someone left to fight so that's very philosophical right like you could if you wanted to you'd never run out of war if that's your goal and you want your life to have some meaning when you are old and i love that because i feel like i mean that's almost a cliche now but in marcus aurelius's time like that's a thoughtful that's a thoughtful thing like meaning not just conquering you know, which is why he was such a great leader, I think, was his take on that. I don't know. Any other, like, Marcus... I mean, it's hard to talk about Marcus Aurelius, the character in this movie, because he's a well-known person in history. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, so I, and he's easy so, to such conflate. a short time period that he's in the yeah. actual movie. But I think the scene where he's talking to his son... Uh, there's two scenes there. There's one where he says to his daughter, let us pretend that you are a doting daughter and I am a, a loving father. And she says, well, isn't this a pleasant fantasy? And then uh, similarly, we see his conversation with Commodus where he's like, your your failings are my failings as a father. Yeah, he's like basically asking for forgiveness of Commodus when Commodus kills him. And I find it interesting that they decided to paint him this way because they paint him as noble in the sense that he he realizes his mistake and is trying to rectify it. But it, it reminds me of the fact that no matter how good you are, and, and you're going there's going to be areas of your life that you neglect, and, and those things are going to pain you in the end. Yes, yeah, definitely. Uh, Lucilla, the sister, 
She has a line, life is more simple for a soldier. And I was like, well, that's easy to say. <laughs> like, <laughs> God damn it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And, but I like, there's a deeper thing there where it's like, the experience of people in war should never be trivialized because it's completely different than any, like, obviously, and I'm not an expert on any of this, but PTSD being the real thing that it is, like, it's not easy to be a soldier. I think that's a pretty, I, I, she's being cute in that moment, but I think, like, to take that sentiment sincerely, like, no, you, it's not easy to be a soldier. Uh, life is more simple, maybe only literally, not yeah. experientially. No. She has a line, leave the people their traditions, keep them satiated. Well, what if the public had better traditions? <laughs> it's not that there aren't activities worth doing. It's just that we, sh- I think it's important to be mindful of our events, mindful of our activities. And one of the really weird things about this movie is how unreflective the people of Rome seem about their proclivities. <laughs> you know, they just are bloodthirsty and not really grasping that these are just people who they're like you know decapitating and like putting (laughs) spikes through and stuff like that and i just that one didn't sit well with me but then so and those are two things about lucilla i didn't like but the truth is she's a victim in this story because she says i've been a prisoner of fear since that day because commodus is unstable and is insufferable to be at the beck and whim of someone incompetent and this is a I would want to reiterate it. It is insufferable to be in some hierarchy or some system where you are underneath someone who's less than you in some way, competence-wise, mm-hmm. intelligence-wise, ethical-wise. Because we talked about this in a previous episode, and I'm not against hierarchies. I think they're actually super important. But they need constant supervision from the outside even to make sure that the people who should have the higher level jobs are getting them. Well, I think it is required of everyone in any institution to police the institution itself and to work towards the nobility of that and and the maintenance of the integrity of that system. And when you allow incompetence to rise in a system it's the banality of evil, right? It's you're, you're allowing, um, you, it doesn't seem that bad. Yeah. Right. And again, people, pro- there are people that prop it up for profit for their own profit. Well, and in the movie now, obviously there's probably people in Rome who don't fit this description, but every other character in the movie are not inferiors to Commodus when it comes to thoughtfulness, ethics, social life, ideas, Everything that makes a person an individual, no one is inferior to Commodus. Commodus is inferior to every main character in this movie, and that, and yet he's everyone's superior politically. Like this that is the is, problem with inherited. Well, that's, and I mean, that's the limit case of yeah. power. Obviously, as a king or an emperor, that's fucking insufferable. But the minor, <laughs> frustrating insufferableness is when this happens at smaller levels in every walk of life and that's why i like I, I think the antidote to that is to try to not overstep your own competencies on people if you have the power yeah to stay in what you know well it takes a level of humility too yeah 
maybe you're not the best at something. And like <laughs> real leadership, if you're incompetent in a certain area, is finding someone who's good at it and entrusting them with that and not micromanaging them. And letting them have the final say. Yes. <laughs> taking their advice. Yes. And but really, truly good leadership is actually just taking a lot of good advice. Yes. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> Commodus is not a good example of that. <laughs> and then Proximo, Maximus's owner, <laughs> throughout most of the movie. I, at first, I was annoyed with his standoffishness and his kind of like commitment to being an entertainer. But then his dust and shadows line, I don't know. I loved his stoicism in everything. And so he's. He's got these great lines. We can choose how to meet death, to be remembered as men. I was the best because the crowd loved me. Win the crowd and you will win your freedom. And I was like, well, he's the entertainer. (laughs) For sure, yeah. But he had an early desire for fame and being loved, but he learned that it was fickle and fleeting. Because at the end, he does choose to help Maximus. So he... Are you in danger of becoming a good man? (laughs) Yeah, right? He knows what's worthwhile. So I guess that's his redemption in it. Because at first you're like, well... So you'd sell people out if it was for a buck or for your fame, like because he seemed obsessed with fame. But he's like the person who learned that that's not worth having. You know, like he kind of reminds me of (laughs) maybe if Commodus had lived an extra 30 years, gained life experience, learned what he wanted wasn't worth it. (laughs) I don't know. That's the, the thing I got from Proxima. But his best line, we are more, we mortals are but shadows and dust, Maximus. And it's an early brave stoicism. And like, I want to shove off or not not give credence to the nihilistic side of that. Like, or like, uh, the nihilistic side of that is a plausible interpretation, right? Well, we're, we're shadows and dust, so nothing matters. The positive side of that ledger is the stoical side, where you are so not blown by your passions because you understand that, you know, shadows and dust. And that's what he says when he's being killed, too, shadows and dust. And he doesn't get the better of death, but he gets the better of his fear of death with that. Which with that I think mentality is maybe the greatest success. Yeah. Uh I think we talked about it in the Donnie Darko episode, but that's like the apex of maturity is to get the better of your fear of death yep is beautiful and then gracchus i do try to be a man for the people i love that line <laughs> i love that line it's, too it's, i'm not a man self, of the people it's self-awareness he's yeah. like i know i'm not like them but mm-hmm. i try to be for them and we talked about it a little bit before too i think when we t- uh, i brought up that idea of the liberal dilemma how do you advocate for people who will cut your legs out and be just basically yeah. shitheads <laughs> all the time yeah. throw beer bottles at the wall if they want so I wrote with that line, he's aware of the vulgarity of the masses, but that doesn't warrant tyranny. And I think that that's part of the Promethean mindset is because if you're Prometheus and you give people fire, yes, some people will use fire to burn their neighbor's house down. And some people will use fire to burn their own house down. And some people will use it for violence and they'll just throw or they'll throw it in the water or they won't know what to do with it or they'll use it for the wrong purpose. But the reason that you still give fire to people is because there are some who will use it as a source of comfort, warmth, and illumination because you can never know in advance and you have the mentality to help everybody else out. And that's Gracchus's mentality in this moment is, you know what, I'm going to help all these people out even if they don't deserve it because tyranny is worse. And I love that idea. 
this doesn't this argument doesn't happen as much anymore but it's definitely happened a lot in history where it's like well why do you want to help those people they're just they're not worth like, saving they're yeah. not they're just the folk they're just the commoners they're like they'll just be shitty <laughs> and it's like well yeah but it's still tyranny is still worse well and if you think about it gracchus has a very uh let's say maximus like view of the world he has his principles and his principles are what matter to him his principles are the people that that, that that it is the role of those who represent and govern the people to look out for their best interests. Yeah. And so I, I, I loved that comment because it, it does get the better of the, it, it's a good response to the liberal dilemma. Yeah. I think he's like, yeah. well, I'm going to actually advocate for the people out of principle, not for any specific one of them, because most of them will let me down anyway. And I already know that. So I'm not yeah. going to take it personally. Yeah. 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 <laughs> actually, because, I think Stephen Harper was a lot like that, actually. That was very much his Ooh, He was a stoic. Controversies <laughs> with really true fiction. <laughs> That's okay. Stephen Harper is, uh, I think he was a fine prime minister. <laughs> I'm not like a partisan conservative by any stretch of the imagination, but he was a fine prime minister. <laughs> uh, so I wrote potpourri, <laughs> things of the movie, the time, the era. Warfare is such a common aspect of the human experience, and it's cruel and terrible, and it makes sense why we try to fight with each other over relatively small things, because it's in our DNA. You know, like, holy crap. Watching this movie, I mean, and I've seen a lot of war movies, but I think it's because of the era of when the war was like, this was just life for people. And two things. Thing one, most important thing, the overwhelming gratitude needed every day by everyone who lives in a country that's not at war. <laughs> and especially young men who would be conscripted or forced to be in the yes, army yeah, and who are, whose lives mean nothing to everyone around them. How the gratitude is so necessary. Thing two, more minor but interesting, is it's a good explanation of why people still try to fight with each other. Like arguments on the internet, I think, are much more mundane versions of that impulse to be in battle. <laughs> like it's, well, yeah, it's I there think, in I us. Think, yeah, our violence violence is inherent to human nature because it is also a survival mechanism. The tribe that yeah. can do violence better than other tribes was the tribe that won. But when you develop social norms that don't allow for that, the next stage is verbal. Yeah. Uh, diarrhea. Well, I mean, <laughs> politics, modern politics is simply the best attempt that we've come up with for the peaceful um exchange of power isn't there that famous quote war is politics by other means yeah well politics is war by other means. yeah yeah exactly exactly <laughs> the world itself there's slavery everywhere what a terrible place to find yourself and so it's just always a good reminder to have more perspective about history like slavery is so awful and yet it, it was so widespread like it was a human institution in every culture in the world so slavery is such a great example of something that Everyone is like, oh my gosh, how could we ever have had slavery? It's such a stain on our history. Yes, it is in a moral or ethical sense. But I would also invert that and say, how amazing is it that we got rid of slavery? slavery? Obviously, there's still slavery that happens in the world, but I don't think there's any country where it's legal. Like, I really don't think any country has legalized slavery anymore. So... That means that every single country on the planet has recognized the abhorrence of slavery and we've gotten rid of it. 
as far as the legal system is concerned. And so a human institution that was a major part of the world economy for centuries and centuries and centuries. So again, the perspective isn't, how did we ever have it? That's the wrong question. The right question is, how did we ever get rid of it? <laughs> yes. And I think that and that I... framing is so crucial for thing, for problems of any kind. Because then now it's not just like pissing on all of the people in history who own slaves. It's figuring out it's how... It's praising the people who helped us get rid of it. Praising the people who helped us get rid of it and, f- and using that as a model to continually get rid of it. Figure out ways to stop sex slavery to stop human trafficking in ways that we can (laughs) this is really dark but if a sex trafficker or a human trafficker lived 500 years ago they wouldn't have to be underground no they'd they'd be selling at the market (laughs) that is moral progress yes rome the, the city of rome killed maximus's family for his crime as I say in quotations. And so I I wrote down that that's proxy injustice, why we need to cherish our civilization's take on individualism. The sins of the father do not get passed on to the son, and they shouldn't, because Maximus' son didn't do anything wrong. Neither did Maximus, but even if he did, you don't kill someone's family. Because of that, yeah. And these are the fundamental things that an individualistic society gets rid of that becomes so second nature that we, when we start to question things like our individualism as a ethos, we don't really take into account like, well, okay. So if you uh, want to be a collectivist, if someone commits a crime, does their family pay for it because they're connected? Well, that happens <laughs> and that had happened. Well, there are most of people who believe you sh- that a group should be punished for the action of members of that group. So, well, I would just say that that is a, ethically inferior view of I agree. <laughs> human affairs. <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> I liked how the, the fight of Carthage, they're celebrating their history too. I, I don't know. I love when I see these historical takes on people, but who are doing culturally, cultural things that we essentially still do today, like well, celebrating I mean, their essentially history. Essentially, we have the gladiator arena. It's just a very tame version. It's called sports. Yeah, exactly. I also have that note. <laughs> sports <laughs> yeah. is what gladiators are. Yes. Now, right? And thankfully, we're not yeah. killing each other but anymore. Like, but we are entertaining ourselves I mean, there is an argument to be made with people who are permanently damaging themselves. Oh, totally. This with, is with this football. This is, yeah. is a big debate. Yeah. Well, no, and it's it's a good one because I mean, if if this is like a basically fatal flaw of football, if, if this is inevitable, yeah, we'd have to get rid of football. Yeah. <laughs> or we'd have to make it non-contact, maybe. Which oh, is, can you imagine? <laughs> just flag. <laughs> It'd be the <laughs> most boring thing you could ever Profe- watch. Professional flag football. <laughs> That'd be funny. They'd all become maybe ultimate frisbee players or something. They'd have to like professionalize and commercialize ultimate frisbee, which would be awesome for me. I would love to watch ultimate frisbee, but anyway, yeah, you're right. It's 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 tough. Like it's a tough case because essentially, if people if if these men are getting long term brain damage, like it's not exactly the same as them getting skewered no, in the gladiator no. pit, but it's. Also, not exactly not like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. I love these deep, hard problems. Yeah, they're good. Yeah. Especially when lots of money is involved. <laughs> but I think it's, I love seeing things in history that remind me that even millennia in history were fundamentally the same creatures. Because, like in Canada, we would celebrate the 72 Summit Series where we beat the Soviet Union in the hockey, right? They celebrate their Battle of Carthage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just yeah. so fun. 
So the people of Rome, tigers at the Colosseum. And so then my note, because there's, you know, these tigers who are obviously not indigenous to Rome <laughs> in the Colosseum. And so I had the note, dangers of an opulent culture that just wants thoughtless entertainment. No purpose to the living, which was Marcus Aurelius's worry from the beginning. Like there was no purpose to their yeah. life. They're just going to the Colosseum to bide their time. Basically hedonism, right? Like what's more hedonistic than tigers in the Colosseum ripping people to shreds and people cheering? Like it's yeah. just, it's, it's a treadmill to nowhere. And I feel like I'm starting to see this more and more in our own culture. <laughs> you know, it's just not a judgment, more as an observation. Because I think that personal responsibility is the antidote to that. Taking on responsibility yourself for things that you want to do is how to get out of that kind of hedonism, treadmill, coliseum, tigers, cheering for death, and waking up years later wondering where your life went yeah i I don't know do you what do you think is a good i think potential antidote for the malaise of an opulent culture i think um i think suffering because really while we are opulent and we're trying to find comfort suffering if we're it's really the avoidance It's 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 more of an avoidance because we are all suffering and we're all if you love anything in this world it will be taken from you Well, and um, the mental health discussion is at such a point where it's like, (laughs) it feels like materially things have never been better, and yet our mental health has never been worse. (laughs) Because we have nothing to strive for, nothing to struggle for. So I think, the if you want my answer, um, at least my answer for myself is, strive. Find something hard to do, and do it. Do hard things. Yeah, and, and make sure that your own standards are higher than anyone else's. Yes. And live by your own. I love the line by Jordan Peterson, measure yourself against yourself yesterday, not anyone else. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a, a great way of summarizing Maximus. Is mm-hmm. I think he measures himself against himself. Yeah. He's not really interested in measuring himself against other men. He's his own yardstick. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. That's a perfect encapsulation of Maximus. Maximus is totally living that Jordan Peterson rule. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and Commodus is only measuring himself to others yeah well that's his that's how he understands his very existence yeah here's my my little postulation on rome i think the reason that rome was great and and the reason that rome became what it became was because it prioritized discipline their armies were not the 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 warriors in the in the roman army were not the best warriors in the world necessarily but their discipline made them the most efficient and effective warriors in the world. And I think if if anyone listening to this doesn't believe that discipline is really the game changer between the life you want or, or and the best version of yourself that you can be, look at the difference between Maximus and Com- Commodus. Yeah, that's all you need. That's all you need. And there's a hell and there's a heaven. Like and, to, 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 there's a heaven to run towards and a hell to run from. Yeah, and the, and the cynic would point out, yeah, well commodus was the emperor and maximus was a slave i would say to the cynic true however at the end of everything you are left with what's inside of you not with what's outside of you and when that happens maximus is the king and commodus is the 
man outside in the pouring rain. He he's the dead body lying in the in the Colosseum as Maximus's body is carried out. Yeah. He's the man who's afraid of his death to the very end, and Maximus is the one who embraces his death. Yeah, and it's so noble. I loved rediscovering the contrast between Maximus and Commodus, which I think is the the true underlying thrust of this movie. The reason I think it sticks with people so hard is that contrast between the two of them. You 100% know? agree. Yeah. And then something that I find super interesting, I don't know enough about to have really solid opinions on, is the sociological aspect of Rome and the the <laughs> the seeming need of all the people to be this gratuitous. Yeah, that would be a long yeah, discussion. That's, yeah. Anyway, thank you for listening. This has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And mine's David Parker. And uh, may you be entertained for all of time unless it gets in the way of your striving. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> See ya. Bye.